did you have something to say? Oh, I was going oh, three. Sorry, done. Okay. Sorry. I think All that right, we should keep this now. as part of the podcast. <laughs> I'm People want to know the backstory. <laughs> three, two, one. <laughs> All right. Hey, everybody. I'm Matt Valley, and this is the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the research and insights pros that you trust. Today's guest is Diane Hessen, one of the great entrepreneurs, leaders, investors, innovators, and visionary thinkers in the field of insights. Diane pioneered the creation of and utilization of online communities for the purpose of market research when she founded her company, Communispace, which is now known as C-Space, purchased by Omnicom, right? Yeah. Uh, where Diane still serves as chairman of the board. But uh, she is also the past recipient of the most admired CEO award from the Boston Business Journal and was a national finalist for Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year. She's a best-selling author, more on that in a moment, and serves on several boards, including Panera, the editorial board of the Boston Globe, and my graduate school alma, alma mater, Tufts University. So appreciate <laughs> you being there, Diane. <laughs> but on top of all of that, Course, did you know that Diane is the founder of an a cappella singing group called the Sound Bites? That's Bites with a Y. She will tell us all about that, her upcoming book, and more on today's podcast. Welcome to the show, Diane. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. Well, I'm very happy to have you here. So I've been wanting to meet you for a very long time. Uh, super, super glad that uh, our, our mutual friend Susan Griffin put us in touch. And you're sharing some thoughts on the podcast. So I really appreciate that. Happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about um, the origin story of Communispace and how you sort of connected in this field of insights. Sure. You know, um, I guess to understand the Communispace story, you have to understand a little bit about my entrepreneurial journey. So in the beginning of my career, I worked for companies and I had bosses and all of those things that entrepreneurs don't like to do. And um, I worked for one company that was actually in the training and development business. I had a marketing background, so I had you know, done marketing, done market research, et cetera. Uh, but I rose through the ranks of this company, I got to the point where I was very, very senior. And at, uh, at the end of one particularly good year, I had a performance review with my boss. And he had been hinting that he was going to leave and maybe become chairman and look for a new CEO. And at the end of my performance review, which was really good that year, I said to him, you know, John, um, I don't want to kick you out, but if for any reason you really are serious about stepping aside, I think I could be the next CEO and do a great job. Awesome. And he said, dying. Someday you're going to be a great CEO, but right now you're a work in progress. And Matt, I was devastated. Yeah. I didn't spend a lot of my life really knowing what I wanted to do. And I finally knew that what I wanted to do was to build and lead an enterprise that really mattered. Sure. And I just couldn't get that job. I had actually asked a previous boss about being CEO. And I finally came to the realization that if I want, there was a very easy way to become a CEO. And that was to start my own company and yeah. call myself that title, which um, actually is not a joke. I mean, 
I know a zillion entrepreneurs now. I live in Boston and I've been kind of at this for a couple of decades uh, doing startups and everything. But I have this theory that there are two kinds of entrepreneurs. There are people who are inspired by their idea. They've got an idea, they build an app, they sell it to Google, and then they move on. They, they flip it. They get another idea. They build that app, they build that software, they sell it to PayPal, and then they move on, et cetera. And the, the inspiration comes from having the idea. Right. That wasn't me. I wanted, I didn't really focus on the idea. I had a couple of good ideas. I knew how to generate them, but what I was really focused on was building a company and not selling it, building a company that really made a dent in the universe. So I wanted to be a CEO. I didn't want to be a CEO of a five-person company. I wanted to be a CEO of a company that felt big and that really mattered. So that's why we started um, Communispace. The first idea I had basically didn't work. We were using, we were building online communities, but we were doing it so that companies could use them as a way for people internally to share best practices and give each other advice. So think intranet on steroids. Right. Yep. A way for people, especially big companies, dispersed all over the place. And um, it wasn't working. The, the software was good. The idea was good. People were buying it from us, but all of our communities were dead. I mean, we would launch a community and 48 hours later, a community of 200 people, two would have come in. Three would have come in. Seven. But they were dead. And we all remember that you know, at the turn of the century, the beginning of communities, like people would go, oh, we're tennis.com. We have a million users. Right. You'd go into tennis.com and you'd ask a question and, you know, you'd get like one and a half responses. Yeah. <laughs> people came in once and then left. We, I, I've told this story many times, but we basically had a lucky day. Uh, I was at Hallmark, uh, where our client, Tom Brailsford, uh, was about to launch with us an internal community to help their store managers improve their performance. Tom looked at me and said, Diane, I love what you're doing, but I just don't know if these store managers are going to come into the community. And I looked at him and said, I don't know if they're going to come in either. Right. And there was silence. And then he looked at me and said, you know, I think I might have a better idea. He said, just think about it, Hallmark, we're a card company. Uh, we have a huge innovation agenda because maybe no one is gonna send cards out anymore. As we move into the new millennium, what do you think instead about bringing our customers in here? Our target customer is you know, moms with little kids, we could bring them in, we could learn about their lives, we could run our ideas by them. I don't know, just what do you think? Well, here, in a previous life, I had done a lot of work with um, more strategic work in helping corporations kind of wire the voice of the customer into their organizations. We didn't really call it research, but I wrote a book called um, Customer Centered Growth. And so right. I said to my client, you know, Tom, I know a little bit about how you listen to customers. It's just that that's not what I was doing in my new startup. We went back, long story short, we built the Hallmark Idea Exchange for Parents in November of 2000. And the thing went wild. <laughs> the moms came in. They could not believe that Hallmark wanted to hear what they had to say. Yeah. But Tom Brailsford is calling me every 30 minutes going, did you see what that one said? Did you see what that one said? I mean, we barely knew what we were doing. But 
we knew that we had really hit a nerve that yeah. we figured out a way through the magic of technology to uh, help companies understand and get inspiration and insight from their consumers on a continuous basis. So why would you put 10 people in a room for an hour when you could have 500 people figuratively sitting in that room available to you all the time and feeding themselves? Yeah. And so Tom was our first client. He was so excited about what we were doing that he called Business Week and said, I'm do, I work for Hallmark, I'm doing something that I think is gonna change the face of the research industry. You should hear more about it. And so one client, there was an article about us in Business Week. Wow. And <laughs> two months later, he came to a conference with me. It wasn't, it wasn't ARF, but it was some big market research conference. I was on one bar stool, he was on the other. I interviewed him about what he was doing. One guy who shall remain nameless, got up and started screaming, this isn't research, right? It's, it's blasted. You know, what you're talking about is awful. There's no way that you should ever ask somebody a question. And then a week later, ask a question of that same person. This is wrong. No one's on the internet. I mean, he's screaming. And I won't mention the person, but he eventually got into the business. Yeah. And I was saying, I was trying to be humble and saying, look, I'm not saying it's research, right? Right. It's not a representative sample. This is not quantitative research. This is not statistically significant, but there is something magical happening here because yeah. we're learning things from consumers that heretofore were only possible to learn by actually being with them in person. When you do it online, you can actually scale all of that unbelievable qualitative data that you get from clients. Right. So that's how it all started. And um, uh, I mean, we had, I, I say to people, Matt, it was about three and a half years of hell followed by 10 years of just glory and yeah. super fun. I mean, you know, when we, it, it took us a while to figure things out, the internet bubble burst, we had a massive case of employee fraud, we were running out of money, we had raised uh, about 20 million in venture capital, just wow. lots of drama. But by around 2004, things really started coming together. We had a critical mass of clients who were early adopters who were really willing to go on an adventure with us. Yeah. And um, the word started spreading. We had happy clients. I'd go to every conference there was and I never made, I never made a speech. I'd always come in with another client and they'd tell their story and people would, people would look at me and go, oh my gosh, there's Diane with another happy client. We would just <laughs> laugh at the whole thing. But um, it, it was very exciting. And of course, the most, you know, as, as time went on, we got way more sophisticated. We learned a lot about how to get people to open up. We learned a lot about how to get very creative with our software. And we were doing heat mapping and you know, Mad Libs and collages and, you know, all really, really interesting sorts of things with our clients. And then probably by 2005, six, seven, uh, we had another breakthrough, which is that we really built a lot of capability to learn how to basically take what we were learning and make it come alive for clients and create, right. um, create stuff that was beautiful senior management really wanted to hear about so that it didn't look like boring research. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 
it's fascinating because I can scarcely think of another company that was as disruptive to the research industry, particularly like the, the supplier side um, as Communispace was at that time, working for other suppliers that were sort of desperate to try to do what Communispace was doing. And you we were always two steps ahead, right? Because it's like, oh, hey, we just, let's recruit some people and we make a community. But there's, there's a discipline behind really getting those key insights out um, and it seems like you're always a step ahead in terms of understanding that. We, uh, well, thank you. You know, one of the things that really helped is it was all we did. Yeah, right. right? We were not a large research company saying, why don't we give this a shot? I mean, this was all we did. And yeah. the deal was that we wanted to be better than anybody else in the world at that one thing, Yeah, which was you know, to build these communities where when consumers or customers came in, that they would have an experience that was, um, that was seductive, where they really just got to the point where they said, um, nobody listens to me in my life. This is an experience that makes me feel important and heard and creative, and I'm going to just give it my all. And we were always very focused on making sure that the experience that the community members had was great. We knew that if we did that, we'd learn stuff that was really surprising. Yeah. And the clients would be happy. I remember once a client said to me, um, uh, I'm trying to think, it might have been somebody from, it was a hair care company. And she said to me, look, I've heard great things about you, but I just want you to know that I have spent 12 years in this company, 12 years listening to women tell me about how they wash their hair, how they dry their hair, and how they condition their hair. I dare you to tell me something I never knew before. <laughs> I mean, those were so, those were so exciting. And I think um, the other thing, you know, when you talk about disruption, I don't know if the disruption was no one will ever do a focus group anymore because people are still doing focus groups and getting great value from them. I think that the disruption was we were trying to change the nature of the relationship between companies and their customers. Right. So yeah. I had a client named Gretchen Waitley at Kraft and she called me one day and she was an early adopter and she said to me, okay, so I have to tell you a story. She said, we're, we were, I was sitting with my colleagues, we're doing a focus group and uh, we're on the other side of the mirror. We're watching all these women talking about whatever. We're eating our M&Ms. And by mistake, one of my colleagues kind of went and leaned on his chair. And by mistake, he hit the light switch. And the lights went on in the room. And all the customers turned around and stared at us. She said, and Diane, do you know what we did? We all hit the floor. <laughs> she said, here I was in one of the most extraordinary CPG companies in the world. And yet our instinct when we were actually face-to-face -face with the customer was to hide. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was to not let them know that we were there and listening. She said, my, my goal in using this Communispace community is to change that forever. Right. So, that was so inspiring to me when she told yeah. me that. And of course, you know, then I tell all the other employees, here's what we're doing, right? This is not research. We're trying to 
change the entire relationship between companies and the people who buy from them and use their products and everything else. So um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty heady experience. Yeah, that's, that's just, it's just fascinating. And what's so interesting about it too, is it's a way to understand consumers, but it can be also used as a way to understand people at large or voters, right? And we're going to talk about that in a second, right? Um, so a little foreshadowing there. But, but first, this is a rock and roll research podcast, right? Um, <laughs> so, so I think I read somewhere that you have an acapella singing group called The Sound Bites, and i got to hear about that. So, so tell me a little about, about that. Sure. I always loved acapella. And um, uh, true confessions, I'm not a great singer. But um, I, there are two things that I can do really well. One is I can write lyrics um, that rhyme and that have the right <laughs> tempo. And the other thing is that I can harmonize. So, um, you know, sometimes if you're doing harmony, like, you know, when you're growing up, you do row, row, row your boat and yep. you start at different times and everything. A lot, of, a lot of people have to go like this, like they can sing it, but they have to close their ears. I just didn't have to do that. I could always kind of figure out uh, the harmonies and everything. And right. um, uh, I just had this idea that it would be really fun. That I, I noticed as I was listening to acapella, remember there was the Capital Steps? Remember, I don't know if you know about the Capital Steps, but that was an acapella group based in uh, on Capitol Hill in right. Washington, D.C. that sang about politics. But oh, it's so <laughs> much fun to do something about business. And um, I had this idea and I sold it to a friend of mine who ran an educational technology conference. Okay. And he, I, I, knew, an, I knew a group um, and a couple of my friends, uh, me, a songwriter, joined up with an existing acapella group and we created the soundbite. And we basically took the words to, took songs that everybody knew and we would rewrite the words so that it was customized the conference okay so, you know we'd have so the group basically we already knew the harmonies we knew how to sing the song but whenever we went somewhere we'd learn new lyrics and the lyrics yeah. were funny and so for the first conference we did uh it was a three-day conference and every single time there was a general session which was probably about eight times famous speakers and all of that they bring us up and Elliot Maisie would say, and now the sound bites and we come running onto the stage and we sing and we introduce the next speaker. And it was so successful that we ended up doing that conference itself four years in a row. And that was kind of a springboard for us uh, doing it with other people. And it was really fun. I mean, we all had day jobs. I was building community space. One was an orthopedic surgeon. Um, one had her own PR firm. Another one was a fundraiser at Harvard. You know, I mean, just lots of different people, but we all loved singing. And um, what we used to do at the end, if we did a conference is we would say to everybody in the audience, look, for the final session of this conference, we need 100 volunteers who want to sing acapella with us. <laughs> and, um, the Friday morning sessions were always like, you know, the last session was 10 o'clock in the morning or whatever. So we'd say, we want to meet you at seven o'clock come on in, we'll break it into four groups, teach you the different parts. And uh, we used to have these moving final songs at the conferences where all of a sudden you had all these people just lit up, excited, and 
you know, singing our singing our final song. So I think the fun part of it was, again, it was the community and bringing people together and not taking ourselves so seriously as we were sitting there learning some pretty serious stuff. Yeah, yeah. What a great way to bring people together too. Yeah. And me, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a music, music person, of course. And so it's just wonderful to hear uh, as busy as you are, uh, there's still time to be cut out for, for music. It's, it's yeah, just it's, that way. Well, you know, you can relate to this because obviously you have a podcast called Rock and Roll. I mean, I've always found that, that there's so much room for music in business. Yeah. Um, at Communispace, we had a couple of things. We had a, um, we have like a jazz thing every single year. I mean, the company was, but as you know, I know you um, had Paul Coley. Yeah, I also had Jordan, Jordan Kusner. Jordan Kusner as well. And Jordan Kusner, yeah. the, the Berkeley School of Music musician. I mean, we right. had a lot of musicians in our company. Great, big, big, talented people. And so um, every year we do a jazz concert and they'd play and they'd figure out their songs. We had people who were amazing singers and, you know, everybody in the company would sit around and drink and it was just another way to bring people together. Or we had um, Community Space Follies, which was kind of like Saturday Night Live with lots of songs. Yeah. Where we get really talented people to come in and, you know, spend two hours in a show that we all wrote um, that made fun of the company. And, <laughs> you know, people... Um, my head of HR once said to me, you know, Diane, I think that Follies is like the number one reason that people say that they stay at the company. <laughs> like they're not going to leave because if they leave, they can't be in the show next year. Like just the idea of, because we finished that show and the following day everybody's saying, I have four ideas for skits for next year and, you know, everything else. It was just a wonderful way to bring people together. So, yeah. yeah. Now, if you ever sell outside tickets, uh, please know because I've heard the story a couple times now, and I I just gotta see it. it yeah, cool. I'm sure there are somewhere somewhere in the bowels of YouTube. I'm sure <laughs> there are I'm sure there are videos from Community Space Follies of all of us doing crazy things. Um, and you know, it just really kept us together. There was one employee who actually I was emailing this morning who was the one always playing me in the skits. And I think she did a better job of, I think she did a better job of me than I did. So, <laughs> really fun, but you know, lots of great talent and um, yeah, singing together is a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Cool, cool, super fun. All right, so so back to, uh, back to understanding consumers and people. Um, I'm so excited about the book you have coming out next oh, Tuesday, I believe, right? Thank so you. Yeah. I have it on pre-order, so I'm waiting for Amazon to do me a solid and bring it to I appreciate your support. <laughs> but as far as I understand it, so I, you, some of the work that you've done uh, in journalism um, with the Boston Globe and others, some of the articles you've published about understanding voters have just been super insightful over the last few years when it's been very difficult to really understand the real, the really, really, if you will, of what voters are thinking. Um, and I know that your book is partially about that. So uh, I'll turn it over to you. would love to hear about your book coming out and, um, and your thoughts on it. Sure. Through a whole bunch of serendipity in 2016, I started applying what I learned from community space and consumers to the political realm. Right. Uh, and 
I basically got addicted to it. Uh, and instead, if I was, um, I had left a CEO job to basically help the Clinton campaign understand undecided voters in swing states. Right. I set up a community. I did all of that stuff. I was sending in reports every week. And um, when the campaign was over, I just, I was about to take another CEO job. While I was interviewing, they were checking my references. I, um, I wrote an article, I wrote a column for the Boston Globe saying, here's what I've been doing. Uh, and here's what I learned and here's what I think it means. And the article went viral. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I, um, I think I'm making more of a difference after the campaign than before. And I made a decision to not take that next CEO job that uh, what I did instead was to set up my life. I joined some additional boards and I set up an angel investment company and decided I was going to take a third of my time and dedicate myself to talking to voters. I didn't really have a plan around it. I just thought it was fascinating and there was so much to learn. So I did a whole new recruit. I recruited 500 people, um, you know, 10 from every state, all points of the political spectrum, every age, every ethnicity, and started doing with them on a weekly basis what I had learned from community states to do with consumers. And it was absolutely phenomenal yeah. uh, to really get to know people. And whenever I learned something that I thought was new or different or interesting, I'd write a column for the Boston Globe. I wrote about 55 columns and essentially over time, I mean, I just, I never stopped. So uh, four and a half years later, I was still in conversation with all of these voters. Wow. And uh, at the end, I thought I was just going to close the, it ended up being a panel. I could get it. I could geek out with you on why I decided to create a panel instead of a community. But sure. at the end of this, I was going to close it all down and um, just end. And I wrote a final article for the Globe and that was it. Uh, it just wasn't enough. I just yeah. decided that I had so much that I wanted to say about what was going on in our country, uh, about what I was learning from real people, about what I thought we needed to do to heal the divides. And my experience was that we should have a lot more hope than we currently have. So I decided to write a book. And um, basically since last fall, I just woke up at four o'clock in the morning, every morning. I'd grab a cup of coffee. Nobody needed me. It was dark. And I'd write for three or four hours, and I did that every single day until the book was done. And uh, yeah, June twenty second, it's coming out, and it's been um, it's been a really it's just been a really great experience. I'm just I'm excited about it, and I you know I hope it makes a difference. Yeah. Now this uh, this podcast is going to air just a couple of days before the book comes out. Um, so is there any any little uh, previews or uh, sure. that you could offer? Yeah, you know, I, I really tried that. I didn't want to write a big intellectual book. I didn't want to write a book for people who spend all their time glued to the TV, who know the ins and outs of everything. I, I wanted to write this for people who say to me, I can't even talk to my uncle anymore. Yeah. Or, um, you know, my neighbors and I, we have a really tense relationship because we're on different sides of the political spectrum. Or um, I don't understand how all those Democrats could be socialists. Yeah. Or um, how can 35 million Americans think that the November 20th, uh, November 2020 election was fraudulent? Like, how did that even happen? It was, it's for people like that. Yeah. And um, 
one of the punchlines is that there is way the book is called our common ground right uh, insights from four years of listening to american voters but one of the punchlines is that there is way more common ground especially on the issues than we realize right in our right. country but you know the extremes get the airtime and so what we think about each other is actually wildly inaccurate mm -hmm. and so i try to lay that out where the common ground is where the misconceptions are and and of course my final chapter which is great for all of us research geeks is all about how we have to change the conversation in our country and learn how to listen to each other yeah you know i i believe that i used to say that all the time when i was running uh community space that listening is an enormously underrated marketing strategy and it's also an underrated political strategy it's an underrated relationship strategy yeah but um you know if, if we if we really knew what was going on for everybody else uh there would be a way forward that's not the insanity that we're all experiencing right now yeah absolutely well i'm very much looking forward to it um you know i was well, thanks certainly for buying it. yeah <laughs> yeah our common ground so it comes out june 22nd so yeah very exciting so it's on the way i think i get it on thursday right <laughs> why why <laughs> anyway okay so this this again this is the rock and roll research podcast diane so it's very important that i know this uh i know that you're a music <laughs> lover i'm a music lover so yes. let's, let's put that to the test right yeah. <laughs> so you're you're stranded on a desert island diane you have three records of your own choosing total yeah. choosing to keep uh, you the rest of your days what are those three records um I'll tell you, it is excruciating to try to narrow it down. It's <laughs> the toughest question of the bunch. Yeah, and I, you know, the ones I came up with are pretty boring. Like everybody has those albums, so it's all good. One is one is uh, the Eagles' greatest hits. Oh yes, yes. And um, the reason is, you know, it's funny. There are people who say to me, "The Eagles." I'm not really sure I know the Eagles. And then you put that album on and they sing every song on the album. We right. all know every one of their songs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which is the same thing with another one that I had thought about, which is the Beatles, Abbey Road. Yeah. Um, same kind of thing. Although I took that one off my list. And the reason oh. is, oh. Um, have you been reading lately or listening to the podcast and all of the stuff about Marvin Gaye, what's going on? No, there's um, I can't remember what it was. I think it might be like a Netflix show or something, but I start. I mean, I love Motown music. Yeah, I um, I grew up with Motown music. I dance with my friends to Motown music. So I have a lot of those Alice, the Temptations, the Supremes, all that. But um, I always love Marvin Gaye and I have what's going on. But there's a great Netflix show about the poetry behind him and what he wrote so i i just started listening to all that music again and i would take it with me wonderful now i thought um my third one is my favorite classical music album which is uh kind of esoteric because a lot of people don't know it but i recommend you just get online and google it it's elgar's first symphony okay and um there's a really, it starts out with a theme that it carries 
all through the symphony. And even if you listen to it for the first time, by the time you're at the end and you're playing this thing loudly and grandly and everything, you just feel like you want to stand there and, you know, conduct and sing the very end. It's just absolutely beautiful. So there's my, there's my little known one in the yeah. middle of, you know, the Eagles and the Beatles and Marvin Gaye. Very good, very good. Very nice choices and, and some nice diversity, right? So you can keep interested the whole time, you know, it's not right. like vibes. Yeah, so. you don't want all the same stuff. I know. Exactly. You don't want all the same stuff, you can't, yeah. Great. Yeah, you can't do Rolling Stones and Allman Brothers. <laughs> they were my next candidates right in there. <laughs> yeah. I love Allman Brothers and I remember when my kids were little, I'd pick them up in the car and I'd be driving and they'd be playing all this horrible, you know, in sync stuff. And, <laughs> You know, all that. And I'd say and there was somebody who they loved who was a guitar player who I thought was horrible. And I remember I would turn on, I would put Allman Brothers <laughs> CD in the car and say, if you want to listen to what good guitar playing is. And all of a sudden I had this little group of my kids' friends all and, and Greg. Uh, I'm fighting the same battles with my own kids, Diane. Are you? Yeah, I, I, I know that. I know yeah, the story. Yeah, <laughs> the kids these days. They don't know what they don't know what talent is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this this has been just wonderful. I really appreciate your time. Um, uh, like I said, I've always been an admirer of your career. And oh, thank wonderful you. to to sit down and and uh, you know talk about the fun stuff in addition to the to the work yeah. stuff and and all of the accolades. So it's it's great. I really appreciate your time and look forward My to reading. Pleasure. And thanks for wearing the Tubbs T-shirt. Go Jumbos. Go Jumbos, absolutely. And rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs>